0: Today in the podcast, we're having a conversation about neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is this idea that people experience and interact with the world around them in many different ways and that there's no one right way of thinking, learning, and behaving, and that differences are not deficits. This is an episode I know you're gonna love because I'm joined by my good friend Callum McCurdy to talk all about it. He believes that we spend too much time trying to be the same and converge in our work teams, and yet our point of difference is where we diverge. Today, I give him a call to explore some of his personal journey and what we can be doing to leverage the essence of each person in order to harness our collective differences.
1: do it live. I'll
0: write it and we'll do it live. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, liftoff. Joining me on the phone is Callum McCurdy. He's a speaker, author, mentor, and facilitator specializing in workplace dynamics and behavior. Over a 22-year career in and around the HR profession across Australasia, He assists leaders and teams to develop radically authentic workplaces by leveraging their uniqueness. Proudly dyslexic and ADHD positive, Callum champions organizations to think differently about different thinking and views the neurodivergent staff in every workplace as the innovative super workforce of the future. I've been hanging out for this conversation. Callum, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People.
1: Thank you. Nice to see you. I'm cool to be here. I'm uh, quite excited about this. I'm not even nervous. Usually I do get a wee bit nervous and nerves go, oh, you know, that means it it matters, but I'm not nervous. I'm excited. Like I've got no idea where we're going to go with the show.
0: (laughs) Neither do I, but I love it. We were just chatting before, before we hit record about like our mutual appreciation of each other. And it feels like every person I have a conversation with, um, who kind of knows you and and who who we kind of have a mutual friend speaks so ridiculously highly of you. And so the chance to get you on the podcast was just a a huge privilege we also, um, you know, my business manager was also at one stage, your business manager. well. So we have this kind of also yeah. this like mutual connection through someone who's worked with us. <laughs>
1: Absolutely knows all our, um, you know, dirty laundry and, and all the all the things we're rubbish at and rubbish. <laughs> Maybe with. we should have brought right, him so as a third person in yeah. this conversation. <laughs> oh, that, oh, yeah, yeah I good don't know. call, good call. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, I want to ask you just three fast facts before we kick off, which is what I do in every episode. Which is where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Oh, a list of
1: three. Uh, where I was born is um, a little town, uh, middle of the South Island in New Zealand, uh, called Timaru. Um, yeah, little place. Um, not really, um, no real distinctive features other than it's built on the lava flow of a, um, extinct volcano called Mount Horrible. There we go. That's all we need. Right. Um, it's, uh, what was the second question well, it was first job. Uh, wait, what was your first job? Yeah. First, my first job, um, it, it depends on, on which sort of, uh, period in life. I had a, a school <laughs> job, a high school job, not a high school job, but yeah, it was high school actually i worked in a bike shop i was a bike mechanic there um which is great because i was a, a keen road cyclist back in the day um but i think the first sort of full-time job i had was uh working in a um a frozen food factory uh when i came back from i was an exchange student uh, in europe at the end of school and of course their uh, school years are, are six months um i guess opposed to ours. So I came back and had nothing to do for a few months when I came back in about August, one year. And I worked in this frozen foods factory that um, we had this big conveyor belt. This is too much information already, Shane. I can see the look <laughs> on your face. Um, the big conveyor belt, which uh, a funnel of frozen food would um, would pour down like frozen vegetables um you might one day you might do peas you might do mixed veg the next day or corn the following day and that sort of thing my job uh, there was a, a gang of eight of us for uh, four either side of this big conveyor belt that sort of jiggled along and I had this piece of perspex about 30 centimeters long and my job for eight hours a day was to break up the clumps of frozen vegetables now of course I was the um I was the, um, the the new guy on the block as well. So I got to go down the far end where people had already broken up all the comps by the time everything got to me. So I had nothing to do. If I was lucky, I might get to pick out a pea on the day that we were doing corn. That was it. Um, I can't even remember your Really
0: question. detailed, really detailed job. And I'm, I'm sure like very just like, uh, you know, very stimulating kind of. <laughs> to, although I did like you, that you called that we were part of a gang because I immediately imagine whenever someone uses the word gang, I think of like a gang and you all had matching jackets and pieces of perspex and hitting the things down. So that's where my no, mind went well, with we, it.
1: Yeah, no, we had, it was kind of like a, a gang because there was a picking order and we had some seasoned, um, like people who had been there for decades. Uh, and yeah. they knew the ins and outs and of course this was their world as well and it was a temporary job for me um but it was and i've always been really fascinated by people and so it was a great introduction to um i guess picking orders and hierarchy whether formal or informal um and just how people operate at work and also what they place their own value on as well and you know what they just feel is value where they add value um so the culture of this you know this little gang this little team um yeah. Yeah, it was, was fascinating. And I've always been a wee bit sort of, I guess, voyeuristic in that, um, that regard, like I'm, Mm. I'm a people watcher. I love going to airports and watching people. And so just getting this exposure to people who were from different walks of life to me, uh, and, and seeing, you know, how they interacted. Um, I loved it. It was great. I mean, just so boring. I can't help but imagine that that has shaped
0: a big piece of like naturally who you are is shaped kind of like what the work yeah. that you do now is. And so kind of in your own words, like give people a bit of a snapshot of some of the work that you do now.
1: Yeah. So I've got a background in um, human resources and HR. I've been doing that for about 22 years or so. And, um, and, and that really plays on or pulls on that fascinated um, fascination with people. Um, and all the way, all the way through, I kind of knew that I, I wasn't, um, uh, I, I didn't want to always be an employee. I wanted to work for myself. Um, and I think also that I'm unemployable, uh, which we may get to as well. Um, but I'm I'm fascinated by um, people and differences, but also but mainly hidden difference. So um, I work with people who are um, neurodiverse, neurodivergent. Um, the top three, I guess, um, categories there are autism, ADHD, and dyslexia, but there's a whole lot of others. It's, it's like an umbrella term. Um, and so I run a, uh, a um, I guess an online community uh, for professionals with ADHD, um, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. And um, we what we're, we're doing with that is uh, I guess trying to flip the script on the stigma, fear, shame, um, negative um, I guess frame of what ADHD is um, and flip it into well, how do we actually harness the goodness that comes from, Uh, a mind that is uh, uh, somewhat different, but certainly experiences the world a little bit different uh, to most people. Mm. Um, So that's, that's what, what I do, what, what uh, lights me up. And so there's I guess, um, tentacles into uh, diversity, equity and inclusion in the workplace, um, on on being valued, um, on also system design, people management um, processes, those sort of things. All these things are designed without our minds in mind. Mm. Um, and so I help organizations, uh, I guess, to uh, leverage who they um, already have because there are cohorts of neurodivergent people in every workplace. We just don't know who they are or where they are. They tend to show up as the problem children. Mm um yeah so that's the sort of stuff that that lights me up and the work that i do
0: i think it's absolutely fantastic work and you know the few times that i've heard you speak on this i i don't think there has been honestly there hasn't been a dry eye in the place there are people who are deeply moved by your own personal stories but also just the way that you humanize so much of the the value of each individual person irrespective of what kind of they show up with into the workplace you you really bring a great sense of dignity to people and if it's okay, no. I would be really curious to hear a bit of your journey um, around ADHD, because I know you know a close friend yeah. of mine has recently just received that kind of diagnosis for her and it's brought a lot of um, a lot of help to her, having something that kind of can give language to what was yeah. very, very challenging to navigate for a period.
1: So I'm curious, would you be comfortable sharing a bit of your journey around that? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Um, I think it's part of that. Uh, the having no shame about, Mm. um, a diagnosis or even not even having uh, the diagnosis, but firstly, I want to thank you for, um, that like the kindness, I think in the words that you used, um, I think words are really important Mm. as well. And I get lost in, in words, but there's a whole lot of, whole lot of things that, that really resonated in there, but also hit home. And uh, like, I'm really grateful for just how you described. Uh, what you just did um so yeah thanks Shane. that's cool the, um my journey is is interesting um i never never thought i had much hardship in my life um you know being male middle aged uh, middle class um white as well, like you kind of get born into privilege, and so I never really ticked any of those diversity and inclusion um, boxes all the way through. Uh, I just had to be born, and, and I was already streaks ahead of a whole bunch of people um, through no none of my own doing. Um, and I also knew that I ha- uh, was dyslexic um, from quite an early age. And the way my dyslexia, um, showed up and also my dyscalculia, which is essentially just the, um, the numbers version of a dyslexia, uh, the way those sort of things, uh, showed up. I can remember in primary school, um, I remember the, that where I was in the room, what with the art on the wall, the teacher I was talking to, what the day was like outside, what she was wearing, what was going on in the classroom with this really sort of vivid, um, memory that i have of this day when i said uh when we we kind of were graduating from uh, picture books to which had you know a, a double page spread um a big sort of illustration and a couple of lines that essentially just um described uh, what was going on in that image to chapter books where there was no image and it was a bunch of um text and justified columns and i said to this teacher that what happens with me is the, the column of words narrows, and so I see the start of each um, line and the end of each line and something in the middle, but it's just a blur and a whole lot of white space. And I thought, wow that's that's crazy. Like how's this book actually doing this? Not really compre- comprehending that it was my mind uh, doing this and not not the page. And so she said, "Well, we'll get your eyes tested. We did, came back with 2020 vision and she said to me, and I remember her words really distinctly. She said, "There's nothing wrong with your vision, so there's nothing we can do." Mm. And i was one of those kids that just wanted to fit in uh desperately just wanted to be normal the average um run the mill that would be perfect for me and so uh, i just shut up about it and i did uh, nothing with that um except for really suffering uh through school with um with reading especially with maths as well where back in the day we had blackboards so there was um, you know, the, the equations being written up in chalk and, uh, for me, the numbers would move around and jump across equations. And so it's all it is is confusion and just dis- disorientation in my mind and, you know, essentially my mind playing tricks on me. And so it became a game, but I tuned out as well. And I never really realized why I was constantly tuning out. Part of it was boredom, um and just getting through the school day as well. But then, you know, we fast forward a few decades and then at the age of 42, I get diagnosed with um, ADHD. And that was the, the thing that really landed with me. And like, I think um, you mentioned about your friend, like that was a real, um, like it was, it was validation. Mm. Like it made sense, the dyslexia. I think I would give up a lot of that, um, the, the constant frustration with that. Um, but my ADHD I wouldn't necessarily give up for the world because it allows me to do um, a whole lot of things. And actually, what the um, what you find with a lot of um, neurodivergent people is they're coexisting. They call them comorbid, um, um, and sometimes diagnoses or um, or what's going on for them. But you know, there's no one's ever died of dyslexia, so I don't know why they use comorbidity as a term. But there's a coexistence, right? And I think the combination of my dyslexia, dyscalculia, and um, ADHD, and probably some other things going on as well that are as yet sort of um, indetermined, um, that creates a really unique experience. And so that's why people who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent um, don't experience the same sort of things. You know, there are some definitely some go to uh, characteristics and patterns of behavior. Um, but, you know, no two people are the, um, are the same in their experiences aren't the same as well. Um, But also as you go through, when you get a diagnosis like that, you do some sort of regression and you look back through your life and there's an element of, shit, what what could I have become? Or what might have happened had I not fallen through the cracks um, in these particular areas? Or had I not had to run away from work and change jobs every three years? Um, And as people cottoned on to me not being as good as what, I thought they thought I was. Um and so just constant sort of managing of uh relationships and of people's perception of, of who you are. Like it was um essentially imposter syndrome uh mm. running rampant. And uh so it's so really simple things uh trip me up. ATMs um I really struggle to use. Like the e kiosk when you're uh checking in on an airline, most apps uh, I, I can't really use. You go into a, a workplace and you have to sign in on the iPad, say who you're meeting and go through the health and safety and the you know, various, um, um, you know, tick the box sort of thing. When a screen disappears for me, I get lost in the sequence. And, and, and I panic, I don't know where I am. I, don't, I can't cook from recipes. I can't really choose... Um, food from menus or in cafes or restaurants. And so I have a whole lot of hacks and go-tos and ways that I work around those things that people think, you know, I'm coping, but actually all I'm doing is constantly sort of fudging uh, the system just to get by. And I had no idea why that was. Um, but it turns out that's what I was doing. So there, I have a whole lot of struggles, but I also have a whole lot of things that, um, that I'm really good at. I never understood the term, um, You can't, you know, that expression, you can't see the um, forest for the trees because I can see the forest and the trees all at the same time. And I can, um, like I do big picture and detail and I go flip between them seamlessly all the time and I don't understand how people can't do that. And, um, um, so I have no trouble with left or right, but I have no concept of which direction clockwise is, uh, unless I look at a clock or my watch. Um, and so I just don't hold that in my head, but I have a 3d, um, uh, I have a, a 3d and a videographic memory, which means if I experience something and it's I tag that experience to an emotion, I'm, I've got 360, um, sort of experience of that locked into my memory. Um, and that can be kind of useful or it can be utterly useless. (laughs) And the thing is, because you, you're born with these sort of things. We don't know that they can be of value. And so a lot of neurodiverse people go through life, having no idea that the gifts, the talents, maybe even the superpowers that they have, um, they, they don't know that they're amazing at particular things, Boy, that was a rant. I might let you say something. No, it was was so helpful because I think there's a
0: couple of things that that stood out to me in that is that one, I mean, for everybody, the things that we think are perfectly normal to us, we actually don't realize are not that normal until we have conversations with someone that goes, actually, I don't do it like that. I've Mm -hmm. never even thought about it in that way, which was one, you know, it's obviously just becoming more aware of the things that we do, which... Perfectly normal to us, but maybe yeah. different to other people. And the other one was the the value of our differences and the importance of our differences and how what they can contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do have another friend who who he describes. He, he always said I have ADHD because he said I always just hated the word deficit and I always wanted yeah. to have it as as an asset. Mm-hmm. And he's like, for me, it's it's an asset to me. And 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 I've really loved his perspective on that. Um,
1: Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I refer to it as ADHD positive. So I'm ADHD positive, I tick the box, I've got it, but also I'm positive about it because I think there's far more, um, benefit, um, than negative or, or deficit to it. You, you get, and like, it's not a disorder. Um, and also it's not a deficit of attention. If anything, I have a deficit of an ability to pay attention to one thing at a time. I'm constantly paying attention to a whole lot of things, mm. which is, you know, the easy distraction, uh, of it all. But also that means that we notice a whole lot, of things. like my reaction time, reaction speeds to, um to things it's, it's quicker than most and like that comes naturally I don't have to work at that you also look at um you look at uh lots of uh, individual sports people um think of uh Lewis Hamilton David Beckham Simone Biles the gymnast um uh Michael Phelps they all have ADHD and they all attribute their success largely to having ADHD um and you would think, hang on, uh, high-performance sports people have to focus. Um, and so there's a real misnomer around um, around focus. Yes, we struggle to focus with many things. However, if we're passionate about something, we can hyper-focus on it, and you'll be very hard-pressed yeah. to, to shake us out of that as well. And so there's a there's a, a negative stigma or stereotype, and yet there's a, a whole bunch of positivity yeah. that can come from it um, you know, having these sorts of things.
0: And that was the question I was going to ask, which was what is, I mean, from the, from your point of view, you're looking at these things and going, Oh my gosh, I, I do things differently to other people. And these things are so valuable from the outside looking in and especially more so probably historically, I'm sure it's still just as prevalent today, but they're probably more so historically. Um, how is it often perceived? Maybe not even just people with ADHD, but other kind mm-hmm. of neurodiverse, you know, um, uh, how how do other people perceive that? What does it
1: typically come across as? Yeah, yeah, cool question. Um, the, <laughs> still to this day, uh, which is really odd, despite a a fair amount of change, and I think Netflix is having a um a, a nice impact on this. But we think of people with autism um as Rain Man, you know, a movie from the mid eighties, mm. which is a really extreme um, version of played up. Uh, autism. um, and for some people, that's quite realistic, but that's you know, and it's called cool, it you know, it's a, it's a spectrum, right? Yeah, um, but that's an extreme one end. There's a whole lot more people uh, where autism shows up very, very differently. Um we think it's people who don't have social skills or have any empathy. all well, alone rubbish. you put put a bunch of people with autism or on the autistic spe- spectrum in the room, they get each other a hundred percent like and it's the same with. ADHD and people with dyslexia as well like it's not a dyslexia you think of as a learning difficulty right and so the actual that you know the dis is difficulty and lexia is words so difficulty with words is fundamentally what that um, that means but that's not everything um, what it is is a um, way of learning that differs from how most education systems mm. go about um, teaching people information and um how to learn as well, so it's actually not the people that are broken, it's the systems that um and the processes that govern how we do things mm. uh, that um that are broken they're not not designed with our way of learning in mind and yet um most people with dyslexia are really high empaths, and you'd think that makes no sense you're having you're struggling with words and yet um, as a result, which is not as a result, but people go, oh, as a result of struggling with words, you have really high empathy. Maybe that comes from some lived experience of going, well, I don't necessarily feel like I fit in, and so I, I'm attuned to how other people might be feeling um, because I don't necessarily feel like I'm valued or, or that I fit in and having to play the game. But it might actually be a sixth sense in um, being able to see how um, how people actually show up in the room, what people are feeling, being able to experience what they might be experiencing right then, uh, in the, in the moment. And so some people think that, you know, dyslexics go down a, a trades path or they get lost in, uh, the education system. They won't do well in testing, standardized testing. Um, often they don't, but that's not everybody. Mm. Um, but actually it's about how people experience, uh, the world. And they can turn their abilities to be um, be amazing in some particular uh, some particular fields. Um, you look at ADHD, but also dyslexics are, are highly represented in um, like emergency management, uh, in crisis management, um, in occupations that require people to to um, to make quick decisions. So. Um, so I'm, I'm rubbish at making decisions. I couldn't organize my way out of a paper bag. Um, I'm terrible at prioritizing things. Um, but when, when, you know, something happens where decision things need to be, um, triaged, uh, I'm the person you want there because my mind is constantly in chaos. Like I'm known as being a really sort of chilled out, relaxed guy, but people don't see the chaos that's actually going on in my head 24 seven. Mm. So my chaos is up here and most people are, are are, are really down down quite low, far below where I am. But when something happens that pushes people into panic, their level of crisis goes up to reach mine. And so I become the most, um, reliable person you want there mm. because I'm, I'm a normal, everybody else is in panic. And so I can go, we don't need to do that or that, but the, here's the three things we should do. And I sort of come into my own. And after the fact I go, how did I, how did I do that? Um, why didn't I panic like everybody else? Because I was just in my normal, I was like mm. every day. Um, and so these, you know, there's, this real, which is why there are, um, wh- why we need to, um, pull on people who experience the world a little bit differently, not just in case a crisis happens, mm. but so we can look at problems a wee bit differently. Um, because we're not always looking at the problem the same way or the question, uh, the mm. same way as well. So and there's
0: real value. Oh, this immense value. And and part of the, you know, I've just finished writing my last book and and the whole opening chapter is is really setting the foundation yeah. that differences are advantages in work, in every in every mm. sense of that word. And the idea that familiarity makes us comfortable but difference makes us better. Yeah. And and yeah. part of the the challenge of that is to to really draw on and pull on the differences of people because we we have a perspective of difference that because it's different to us it makes us uncomfortable and so we, we hear about how it shows up in at, yeah. in the world and you know in childhood typically you know they're the troublemaker at school or the distracted student at school but mm-hmm. but what about workplaces because there would be a lot of people I could imagine that are living with different kinds of you know um, potentially someone has ADHD but has never been diagnosed with that but doesn't really just know because mm-hmm. they've never kind of experienced yeah. that but it shows up at work so What are some of the things that we see at work with people that are misunderstood that people go, I never really understood why you did that. But maybe Mm. now with that, that makes more sense for us.
1: Yeah. Um, that's a massive question The um, so about 80% of people who are neurodivergent are undiagnosed, so they have no idea what's going on for them. Um, you have about 10% of the population, uh, has dyslexia. Around about um, three to five percent of uh, the adult population have ADHD. Around about one to two percent um, have uh, autism or are on the autism spectrum. So the sort of the numbers are quite small. However, you know neurodivergent cohorts are in every workplace, um, and we just don't know who they are. But often, as I said earlier, they sort of show up as that problem child, the person who um, who challenges. Um, a manager who may, um, may be relatively weak in being able to handle, um, their style being questioned or, uh, their decisions being questioned. Uh, sometimes it shows up as people whose performance, um, either plateaus or there's peaks and troughs, troughs, and that's rather irregular. Um, the thing being with those who are neurodivergent, they can't necessarily explain what's going on. So we can't explain those um, peaks and troughs and performance and motivation, uh, time management, um, perhaps. Now, one, one thing, like, I've got to, got to say that um, neurodiversity is a reason, but it's not an excuse. Uh, like, we're all adults, we're all professionals, uh, we have to um, accept and own Uh, what's going on for us when we find out and when we uncover and and discover things about ourselves, right? Um, But also what we need is workplaces that are open to looking at things a wee bit differently, doing things a wee bit differently, making some reasonable accommodations, which, you know, in both our countries, by law, organisations need to do. Now, that's not um, giving an unfair advantage, that's just levelling the playing field. Um, And how they... How things sort of uh, show up is um, you might get people who, you know, the ideas person, often uh, the ideas person, but can't necessarily follow through, uh, doesn't get uh, finished, doesn't necessarily finish jobs, uh, Can un, has a really unrealistic um, sense of how long a job will take. Or will be really, really keen and enthusiastic and go, yeah, I'll get that to you tomorrow. And yet the following you're still waiting for that thing and that person can't actually get past the starting point as well um and so 88 people with adhd are are often um attracted to uh creative professions um and i guess the stereotype is just don't rely on them to deliver anything like start lots of stuff but don't rely on them to finish something which is actually why we should reshape the idea of roles and uh, teams as well. Like get some people who are great at starting, some people who are great at picking up something um, that's already in tow and carrying that on, and a bunch of other people who are really good at finishing the task and actually, uh, I guess, creating workflow so that each of those per- each of those people are able to do their bit that comes really naturally so we don't have to train them so just come and do what you do naturally for this part of the job but not be responsible for the whole thing because all that job descriptions are so you know um back in the industrial revolution times where they say have this catch-all of any other um task as required and you're also required to be be able to think up um resource and deliver on a, a massive sort of project or a workflow that is unrealistic for any individual to deliver on as well and yet we're kind of always looking for these amazing people i think if we chunk down work to be for what comes naturally to a to a person you have higher engagement greater experience greater use of people um sense of fulfillment and value um performance as teams will go through the roof as well um but again the and, and you know you're the the master of this Uh, the book you've just written is uh, around how do we harness culture and it's about setting up an environment for everybody to thrive and that means doing things a little bit different but also allowing work to be done uh differently as well instead of the way we've always done it i don't even know what your question was so i don't know if i've answered it (laughs) no yeah no i mean part of the, the thing that's standing out to me is like we we
0: look at you know things like sport, and and we go well. We know for our elite sports people, we take a, a football team or a you know soccer, depending on part of the world you're in, and we go well. We know for this person to be the best in their role, they play a striking position or a defending yeah. position, and we're not gonna we're not gonna move them around the field and get them to go well. You're, you're gonna be a defender, but then you're gonna take the ball to the midfield, then you're gonna take it down and you're gonna mm-hmm. keep the goal. We're like, well, no, we're gonna put you in a position, and we're gonna utilize your strengths and and bring out the best of you in that position. And then we go, okay, we're going to take you as an employee, but we're also going to move you around and expect you to do all the kind of the aspects yeah. of, of this role that sits outside of your areas of strengths. So rather than leveraging strengths, we end up, you know, exactly criticizing people for their, their, their weaknesses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also, so what, um, yeah, yeah you did right. But look at what we've always done as well in terms of promoting really good technical people into managerial leadership roles. And we tend to lose a great technical person and gain a rubbish manager. So, you know, we lose out twice as well. Mm. And it's a similar, um, it's not the same, but it's in a similar, um, vein in terms of expecting people to be generalists, um, you know, employing them for, um, a really specific title as well, but there's a whole lot of other mm. things that, like I can remember, I worked for a, um, a big four accounting firm and i was a, a manager in that firm and one of the things i had to do was um billing at the end of the week we had a system that i simply could not use um it had a whole bunch of drop down um, boxes and menus and clicks and the sort of things screens would disappear and like that's my nemesis that's my kryptonite uh something as fundamental as that but when a screen moves changes or i have to marry up um uh, like columns or lines rows on a spreadsheet like i just can't do that um, there's nothing, you know. There's no, there's no right angles. There's nothing straight in um, me looking at a at a spreadsheet uh, or a um, a web page that or an internet page that has a um, bunch of drop down boxes. And so I hid from that sort of thing. I was always late with it. I went and hid in the toilets and dreamed up a whole lot of um, you know bizarre scenarios that just kept me occupied until most people left. And then I went and spent long, long hours. Uh, on a Thursday or Friday night, whenever we did the, the billing, just trying to capture that sort of thing. Um, and I, I had people that had, I been had enough knowledge, but also enough courage to say, I really struggle with this in a workplace that said, that's all, that's good. We've got people who can do that. If we could have that conversation, um, I would get, I would, I would get weeks of my life back in the three years I was there. Yeah. Um, and so there was no need yeah, which is which is which is a great
0: question that, that comes out of this, which is we, we typically observe kind of certain behaviors and patterns within an organization and, and from people who we, you know, and not maybe not maliciously but unintentionally um, would write them off as, you know, underperforming or, you know, like you said, they're going through peaks and troughs. And so we kind of write people off rather mm-hmm. than saying, hey, is there more to the conversation yep. here? What what gets in the way? Like, why mm-hmm. is there still this huge stigma and what makes that a still a bit of an uncomfortable for conversation for people to have.
1: Um, you could blame the Instagram, um, lifestyle, like how people are trying to curate this image of, um, perfection. Mm. We could think about, uh, internalized competition within organizations and teams and striving for, for better performance and internally, um, trying to compete for, um, airtime with the CEO or for budget or, um, hitting milestones and sales that, that sort of thing, maybe. Um, but fundamentally, a lot of what's getting in the way is the, it not being safe for people to um, not just be vulnerable, because I think vulnerability is kind of over overdone today a little bit, um, but just be themselves, uh, to say, um, I'm amazing at these things. I really struggle with these things. Can I get some help with this in order for me to spend more time doing these sorts of things? Whereas what we would have done in the past is recruit people to fit a particular um, role. And you have to be amazing at the entirety of that role. Now, nobody is. Um, I also think our selection processes, not so much the techniques, but the um, the, the hurdles um, that we put people through aren't necessarily set up for everybody to thrive. And so a lot of people are thinking that they've kind of faked their way into the organization and they have to keep up that facade, um, of just how amazing they are. Like I, I, I don't know how we still, um, assist with psychometric testing. Um, there's not a single job in the world, um, for that a person has to sit down for eight, 10 hours a day, however many. Um, and try and figure out if the next symbol is a square, a triangle, or a rectangle. Um, like it's that, that's not a thing. And so, yeah. how that how that translates into a person's ability to do a job um, out there in the field or doing whatever that like there's there's a real mismatch there. So I think we've got to make our um, selection processes real and relevant to the job, but also create enough space for there to be give and take for people to have the conversation um for for leaders to go um what do you need here's some fundamentals that we need in this job do you tick those boxes yes okay what's the stuff that you might struggle with um what sort of conversation can we have around uh those sorts of things um like Mm. make it easy like make it real it's it's almost like humanizing the workplace again
0: yeah I would, yeah, I would suggest that most of our—I uh, I say this quite a lot—most of our biggest problems can be traced back to a communication issue and can be resolved mm. with a communication solution. At the end of the day, most of our problems can be resolved if we just sit down and have a really honest conversation no, with one another, like, yeah, and and speak human to human. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, there's such value that people in our organisations can be contributing to the business. And I want to kind of put on the the leader's hat, who might be listening to this mm. podcast, thinking, okay. I want to harness the best of, you know, some of our neurodivergent people. And I I wanna be able to take practical action from this conversation. Because for for me, I feel this has been valuable in raising kind of consciousness and Mm. awareness of potentially there may be more to the people around us than what we're initially seeing. I want to have a conversation, but I don't want to go into that conversation and not have something that I can do to take action that demonstrates that I do really care about this. So what mm-hmm. are the practical things that people, people could be doing both in the conversation and moving forward?
1: Yeah. So, um, something that I was going to respond to and then probably uh, forgot a, a line that you, um, gave probably about 10, or 15 minutes ago, Shane, around, um, difference and and how do we um, use difference as well A line that I use is where difference lies lies the ability to make a difference. I think where we can get people, um, to, uh, where we can have, where we can populate teams with people who aren't all the same, where we go, where, where are we too similar? Um, where some, where are we lacking some difference? Um, and how do we, what does that mean in our team? What are we actually looking for them then? So actually. Managers who are unafraid of leading difference uh, is a real key, I think, there as well, as opposed to um, what seems to have happened for the last couple of decades. This whole concept of recruiting for fit uh, seems to be more about recruiting people with minds like mine. Who is the easiest person for me to manage? And we'll take those. And that tends to be around um, where is that affinity bias? Who do I know who is similar to me? Um, what resonates with this person in terms of their similarities so that we'll get on really, really well. Uh, and that doesn't that doesn't increase um, performance or the potential for performance uh, as, a, as a team, as a collective as well. Um, I think also the, uh, what needs to happen is creating that environment for us to have these conversations like you've alluded to, like it's everything. Having an ability to be able to say, uh, I'm really struggling. And for a manager or a leader to be able to identify um, when those times are happening and to ask because people who are neurodiverse who have spent their lives trying to fit in but also masking and hiding um, what they perceive as a deficit which could actually be and often is um, most likely the thing that other people really love about that person um, so there's a there's a paradox going on there as well but so we've, we're used to managing relationships and we're used to um, managing the perception that others have of us. We're used to masking and hiding the stuff that we think other people will shame us about or that we feel some shame about because it seems so easy to everybody else and use um, I can't tie my shoelaces the way other people do. Something as simple as that, which has absolutely no bearing on a person's value as a human, but it's something that's like everybody finds really easy, but I really struggle with that. Um, and so we're hiding all these things all the time. So we've got to create uh, an environment where Where we can have those conversations, where we can um talk about the stuff that we're struggling with, the stuff that really lights us up mm. um and so so that's really useful, and it's the kind of thing it's an extension on um I guess building trust and trust in teams as well, where you go well hey. We, we create an environment where we don't necessarily individually own all our ideas, but we put forward really stupid ideas just to get those off the table, so we're not stuck on those things, or we leave the meeting wishing that we had said something, which was ultimately may have been a really dumb idea, but at least but that's the thing you leave going, I wish I had said this, got it out, or ask the dumb questions. Um, I've like I one process I use with um with uh, executive teams is a process I call start with stupid. Like how do we get to the, what's the stupidest thing we can do? Let's get that off the table because often the best ideas come from the dumbest ideas. Mm. Um, What's the dumbest thing we could do? What's the dumbest question we could ask? Um, And just get those sorts of things out. So if you create an environment where um, the first idea doesn't have to be the perfect idea and the fully formed thing where we can go, I've got this thought, I've got no idea what we can do with it, but chuck it out there. Let's, Let's do our best with that. Um, and pull that to pieces mm. and for somebody's credibility and value, not to be weighted on the words that came out of that person's mouth, but how they actually facilitate it, the growing of that idea and the solution, that sort of thing. Um, so that's, there's some, you know, some ideas around that. I think actually, um, there's some practical things we can do in terms of our recruitment processes, but also how we manage and lead people, the, um, one size fits most approach to reviewing and and managing performance expectations. And, um, like a lot of that is broken. Um, and, and I think also one risk we have, um, dare I say it using that word COVID of what's happened over the last couple of years, which has fast tracked us to working from home, to being able to do things over zoom. Um, and for large periods of time, Physically away from um, the rest of the team and our managers and our staff, etc., is that neurodivergent people can uh, hide um, workplace pressures. Um, now we can timestamp um, emails. So I might work uh, until three o'clock in the morning and send off a couple of emails to the team, but timestamp that to go out at 10 to 8. So people think that that goes out then so we have no idea of the overwhelm and the overwork and the workload that people are doing in the, in the background as they're you know supposedly safely working from home having a great experience but actually they're putting in twice the amount of effort so i think having conversations around um how are you going how are you finding working from home what what can we do for you there because um I think working from homes given neurodivergent people not only some freedom but also an opportunity to continue to hide uh, the things that um we we struggle with as well. And so there's real there's some health and safety, there's mental health and well-being uh, risks in that. like it's not everywhere, it's not rife, but the thing is we don't mm-hmm. know unless you know you've got a manager, a leader who's concerned enough to to check mm-hmm. in as well. Yeah. One, does that answer any of your questions?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so many, so many kind of practical things. What I, I I feel like I'm hearing so much in this conversation is, is more than anything, what is most valuable is a manager who can say number one, I see you, Mm. which is I can see you in as a human being with, incredible contribution. Mm -hmm. And the second is that I value you. I value your contribution that what you bring to our team is not what everybody else brings to our team. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I don't want to punish you for your difference. I want to leverage you in your difference and I want to kind of um, help you utilize and bring your difference so that we can collectively make the difference that we're here to make. And I mean, I'm mindful of our time, but if you could, I guess, like if I gave you a soapbox to stand on and I gave you kind of 30 or 40 seconds to speak, like, you know, tap into your crusade, whatever it is that you're on right now. But if you were to speak to leaders in organizations right now, what would you be saying to them? What's the the thing that's burning in your mind that you have to say?
1: Wow, a soapbox, but you give me 30 or 40 seconds. So I'll take probably (laughs) six or seven minutes. So you can cut me off anytime you like. Feel free to mute me. But the thing is, and we haven't even got into uh, leaders who are neurodivergent as well, and the the genius and the gem that can come from that, but also the struggles around um, their team not getting them as well. And the frustration in that and and the need to be um, open honest, because there's nothing that says neurodiversity is um, exclusive to only staff and not leaders. Um, Mm. You know, most entrepreneurs, not most, many entrepreneurs um, are neurodivergent as well. And so there's a whole lot of stuff in there. So. Essentially, my soapbox is I want to flip the script on uh, in particular ADHD, but neurodiversity as a a concept um, where people who feel like they're broken uh, are valued um, because they're not broken. It's the system that breaks them. And that's not to say that what we need to do is then pit them against us. So you've got neurodivergent and you've got neurotypical. Um, It's not about them against us. It's about us. So how do we leverage the difference that already exists in organizations that naturally occurs in people that brings um an amazing set of abilities now it's not a single ability but an amazing set of abilities that we can uncover unlock and unleash in our organizations uh, if we uh, show an interest if we choose to care uh, if we choose to say i love how you do this there's some other stuff here that i think we probably both agree we could try and um tone down a little bit but you know what whatever you need right but this stuff here we really want to amplify so it's about flipping the script on um on the i guess the negative uh stigma fear shame deficit based um of the the three big um you know neurodiversities uh, autism adhd and dyslexia but in particular for me ADHD is um, an amazing set of abilities that come with some struggles that in those struggles tend to be uh, system and pr- uh, process based and uh, the amazingness tends to be um, natural traits talents and attributes so harness that goodness um, and let's just find ways how we can minimize uh, the struggle that comes from those things that are um, process-based. So it's like I refer to, um, and it's even on, you know, on this mug, it's about ADHD positive, uh, which I talked about uh, earlier. I'd love to be able to flip the uh, stereotype of what ADHD is so that some people eventually go, oh, man, I wish I had ADHD. Um, for people to see it as um, as some... As positive to start with, but also uh, the amazingness that it can actually be if we allow people to be that, which is essentially allowing them to be themselves. That's that's my side box. I reckon. I honestly, I I was sitting here going, I really hope you do go
0: for another six or seven minutes because I, I I feel like I could I could have a conversation with you all day because I think one of the things I and I said at the start and I'll say it again is that you bring such an element of of bringing real humanity to people and dignity to people and inviting us to create a conversation that allows every single person come to work and feel like they get the chance to do what they do best every single day, which is ultimately kind of all of our goals, right?
1: As, as leaders is, yeah. is helping people yeah. do what
0: they do best every day.
1: Thank you. I mean, one of your superpowers is actually summing up the waffle that people speak <laughs> <laughs> like, grabbing the essence of that. And I felt like you're an amazing listener. Like everybody has, Everybody has a thing, and I think also there's a um, there's like neurodiversity is also becoming one of those buzzwords, and so there's an expectation that people who are neuro- neurodivergent are always exceptional. Um, we, I think, we also need to create. We've got to be very careful that we allow people to just be average, to just be normal, like to just fit in as well. You don't always have to be exceptional. Um, And so I use the term superpower because I believe it is, but simply that's because some of the things that people who are neurodivergent can do are relatively rare. Um, That doesn't mean they're better than most. It does not mean better at all. It just means different. Um, But everybody has their thing. So you'll have a thing, Shane. Like you've got many, many things, right? But also the things that that we have as individuals, they don't have to always be um, perfectly of value. Um, and also well-formed, um, and so I think, and I think that's the journey through life that we're all on is trying to figure out, um, what comes naturally, what can I do? How, where does that, who values that? Um, and where do I want that to, to show up as well, right? And you're doing this by being not only an amazing, uh, an amazing conversationalist, uh, having great questions that build on each other and follow on so you keep a conversation going but but an ability to listen to the essence of um you know an often 10 minute rant and to sum that up in 25 seconds um that's that's genius and we shouldn't also look past the the value that that has and that that can have um and I think and that's you know so you're bringing that to the world with this podcast like these conversations you have are amazing and but you're the facilitator of those uh conversations and also you build on what happens in the session as opposed to it all being pre-designed um you know you you're thank you you're doing all this like and i love it i so appreciate
0: it so much thank you it's honestly i i could talk to you all day and I want people to be able to, um, to be able to connect with you because I think the work you're doing is really great. The community you're building is fantastic. Um, and we didn't touch on it today, and I'm glad you mentioned it, which is, again, helping leaders who find themselves in that place going like, well, what's my best contribution? And I think you do help people bring out the best contribution. But what are the best ways for people to be able to connect with you and learn more about the work that you do? Uh,
1: simple, probably the two easiest ways, through my uh, website, kellammacurdy.com. Um, you could google that uh, but also hit me up on LinkedIn um, I tend to always be there as well and it's a great way of uh, connecting and sort of directing people to uh, where they want to go as well so uh, that's they're the the simplest ways to do it I do have a podcast uh, myself which we're recording the second season of too it's called you me and ADHD um, which is simply just conversations with people who have um, hacked and harnessed their ADHD Um, so there's three ways there uh, before you even sign off show notes as well. Cool. Thank you. Look, I just want to say thanks very much, Shane, for the opportunity. It's been great to connect and and have a chat. Been looking forward to this for a very long time. So thank you. Likewise. Thank you,
0: Carl. appreciate it. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.